For once, I'd like people to clap when I do something good. (laughs) If you have your Bibles, you'll want to turn to Nehemiah chapter 2. Nehemiah 2, verses 11 to 20. Nehemiah 2, verses 11 to 20. Let's ask God to guide our time. Father God, uh, I thank you for the privilege that is ours to look at your inspired and errant word, to learn from a man, Nehemiah, who is clearly a man after your heart, a man of leadership, a man who has characteristics that we need in our lives, a person of integrity. Father, mold us into this type of person and help us to understand him better. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. I don't know how many of you have ever seen the movie Glory. The movie Glory is about the 54th Massachusetts Division in the Civil War. It was the first all-black division, obviously fighting for the Union. And although it was called the 54th Massachusetts, many of the soldiers, the thousand strong that enlisted, were not from the state of Massachusetts. In fact, we know that one quarter of the men who enlisted actually came from slave states. We also know that another quarter or more came from other northern states, and they all came to fight for their nation, to fight for freedom. Now, one of the difficulties of this, shame on our part, is that no white officer wanted to lead them. Finally, a man named Colonel Robert Shaw volunteered. He would lead the 54th Division. As it turns out, his best friend was in that division. It became a moment of loneliness for him when he realized that this black enlisted man who was his best friend, who was under his command, now required, because of military decorum, a separation between The two men, they couldn't share all their secrets. They couldn't share all their heart. And so both men suffered leadership isolation. Nehemiah in our text is going to suffer leadership isolation. The higher you go in leadership, sometimes the lonelier it becomes. That was true for Colonel Shaw. Now you can imagine, Colonel Shaw is a young man a man of privilege, born wealthy. He is, because of his rank, leading a thousand black men who have no privilege and no wealth. And he's only leading them because he has been designated with rank. But the truth is, he has not gained the trust of the very men he will need to lead into battle. How does a white man, rich, born of privilege... Gain the respect of a thousand men very unlike him. Well, the day comes when 
the men received their first paycheck. They've been promised, like all enlisted soldiers, $13 a month. But they open up their paycheck, a Civil War fact we ought to be embarrassed about, and they discover that because of the tint of their skin, they will only get $10. And one black soldier cries out the same bullet that kills the black man kills the white man. We deserve the same pay. And that man lifts up his pay stub and he rips it up and he throws it on the ground. And 999 other men lift up their paycheck, rip it up, and they throw it on the ground. They would rather fight for free than fight for less than others with just a tint color of difference. It's a defining moment when Robert Shaw pulls out his paycheck, rips it up, and throws it to the ground, and the men cheer. He's one of them. He now has earned the right to lead them into battle. And the day comes. The day comes when they go down to Fort Wagner, 1,700 Confederate soldiers in a picket fence on a beach, lots of artillery cannon. There's no way to get at this fort without a slaughter. Lots of regiments there, all white and one black. The cry comes out for which regiment will volunteer to lead the charge against an impenetrable fort on the beach. And there's silence. And one regiment steps forward, the 54th Massachusetts. And there is awe and silence among all the white regiments. Everyone knows whoever leads that charge, there will be a slaughter. And there is. And Robert Shaw gives up his life. Better than one out of two men give up their lives but they take a strategic place. Fort Wagner is taken, and they will live in glory, their memory, going forward. And that's Nehemiah. Nehemiah has a moment in which he needs to regain or to gain the trust of those in Jerusalem. He's not one of them. He's a man of privilege. He's the cupbearer. He lives in Susa the citadel a thousand miles away. And yet in verses 17 and 18, when he talks about the derision of the great king that is being mocked by the people, he said, let us rebuild the walls. Let us end the derision. Let us end the shame. Are you kidding me? The walls have been laying in ruins for 141 years. He wasn't even born. He lives a thousand miles away. He hasn't ever been to Jerusalem. And yet he becomes one of them and he earns the right to lead them to rebuild the walls. Let's pick up in our text and we'll see the isolation piece starting in verse 11 all the way to 16. So I went to Jerusalem and I was there three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me. And I told no one what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. 
There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the gung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley. I inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. I had not told yet the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Let's consider our text. It's been four months. By the time we get to verses 11 and 12, those four months have now stretched to eight months. You remember the first four months. Nehemiah was the cupbearer to King Artaxerxes. His brother went to Jerusalem. He came back with a report that the city of their ancestors lay in ruins. The walls are destroyed. The people are discouraged, depressed, despondent. It's a bad situation. And you remember what Nehemiah does. He's a man of action, but even more than that, he's a man of prayer. And for four months, he prays, he fasts, he mourns. For four months, he seeks the mind of God. For four months, he asks God, what is the move to make? And then that fateful day occurs. As a cupbearer, he's in the presence of King Artaxerxes. And he has a discouraged look on his face. He doesn't have the proper decorum. And so at that moment, the king says, hey, this could be nothing but sadness of heart. Why do you look that way? And immediately, the text says that Nehemiah is afraid. And right he should be, because he has the wrong decorum in the presence of the king. But Carpdium, he seizes the day. He seizes the opportunity. He doesn't initially mention Jerusalem. Because you remember, Jerusalem lies in ruins, Ezra chapter 4, because of the order of King Artaxerxes. So he doesn't immediately mention Jerusalem. What he says is this, why should I not be discouraged when the city of my ancestors lies in ruins? And then he begins to express what God has laid on his heart after four months of praying and planning and preparing and plotting and mourning and fasting. And you remember King Artaxerxes, like anyone in authority, he's heard a thousand pie-in-the-sky possible scenarios of what to do with his money and his resources. Lots of people come with plans. He wants to know, Nehemiah, have you thought this through? And Nehemiah lays out the plan, and the king is impressed. And the king actually sends him along the way with the Calvary. Well, that was at the four-month mark. And then by the time he arrives in Jerusalem, we're really at the eight-month mark. In months five, six, seven, and eight, some of that's travel, but more of that is preparation, planning, plotting, and preparing. So we have eight months from the time he first hears to the time he arrives in Jerusalem. Now, if you and I had been Nehemiah after praying and fasting and mourning and plotting and preparing and planning for eight months, and you finally got there, what would you do? You'd seize the day. You'd go after it, right? But that's not what Nehemiah does. He gets there, and for three days, he seemingly does 
nothing. Are you kidding me? I mean, this is the time to have a McGregor Mayweather platform and tell everybody what you want to do. This is the time for a Nike commercial, right? This is the time to seize the audience. Think of it this way. What would happen? What would happen if suddenly President Trump or President Obama or W before them, what would happen if one of these guys suddenly showed up in Wausau and no one knew why? And the media has no idea why. And three days go by and there's no word why. We are talking about the prime minister, the second most powerful man on the face of the earth, showing up and he hasn't explained himself to the Jews, the nobles, the priests, the leaders. Nobody knows why he's there. But we do. Because he tells us in verse 11 that I've told no one what God had put on my heart. I think he's taking the time to check what God has put on his heart to do for Jerusalem. God has a habit of taking leaders and putting them in isolation and on the shelf and preparing them prior to action. God prepares leaders to lead. Sometimes individuals think that what happens on a platform on Sunday just happens. There's lots and lots of preparation and planning and praying and mourning and fasting that precedes it. I think of Moses. When we think of Moses, what comes to our mind? Probably the guy who led the Jews out of Egypt to the brink of the promised land. The guy who led Israel, Inc. for 40 years. And that's true, that's Moses. But what preceded it? 40 years in the Midianite desert working for his father-in-law Jethro in utter isolation. What precedes it is a, a bush that's on fire and is not consumed and he gets a greater vision of God's glory as he communes with God and gets to know this God because he's going to lead on behalf of this God. And 40 years God built in him until he's 80 years old and then he becomes the leader of Israel, Inc. Think of David. Before he was ready to be a king, he had to know the king. Many of the Psalms attributed to David have the theme of shepherd. How does he know the theme so well? Because he was out every day, week, month, year, out with the family flocks in isolation, communing and getting to know God he needed to know the king before he became a common king. I think of Saul, later called Paul because he worked with the Gentiles. Saul came to Christ on the road to Damascus. And then what? Well, the text tells us he went to Arabia for three years, silent years. Tradition tells us that he spent the time praying and studying God's word and getting to know God. And then he comes back, and then what? About seven more silent years. It's a decade after the Damascus Road experience before Saul Paul becomes a public figure. 
before God uses him to pen 13 books of Scripture to plant 60 churches. It's a decade of isolation, a decade of God preparing him to be the leader that he would become. I think the most remarkable example is Jesus. Jesus is God incarnate, God in flesh. Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. But he comes to earth and for the first 30 years, he lives with his father and mother. At least for some of that time, he's a carpenter, probably under the tutelage of his father. Maybe eventually he hangs up his own shingle. I don't really know. But 30 years before three and a half years of public ministry. And how do those three and a half years begin? Matthew 4, God incarnate, the second person of the Trinity, goes out in the desert and fasts and prays for 40 days and 40 nights. And if God incarnate needed that time of isolation and alone and preparation for public ministry, how much more do we? One scholar pastor wrote it this way. He said, the anvil upon which God molds his leaders is silence and solitude. It is during these interludes that God forges the qualities, thoughts, and character of a true leader. That was true for Colonel Robert Shaw. It was true for Nehemiah. It's true for you. It's true for me. I think of some words that Jack Graham, former pastor of Prestonwood Baptist Church once wrote, he said this, leaders spend time alone in prayer, preparation, and planning. I've discovered this in my own life. People watch me on the platform on Sundays, but Saturdays are miserable for me. When I became a preacher, I forgever gave up having much fun on Saturday. If you've ever been around me on a Saturday night, you'll wish that you weren't by the time the night is over. Because the weight of the responsibility of Sunday is upon me. I dare not come to the pulpit ill-equipped, having not paid the price in planning, praying, and preparation. I want to hear that phrase. The weight of the responsibility of Sunday is upon me. Maybe you teach in Generation 180. There's a weightiness to it. Maybe you teach in Women of Real Devotion Word. There's a weightiness of teaching. Or in a men's Bible study. Or in journeys. Or in young singles. Or in life groups. Or in Sunday school. Or in a host of other Bible studies. There's a weightiness, a weight. We don't want to teach God's word frilly or loosely or wing it. There should be a lot more time in the back room than there is on the platform. There's a weightiness of dividing God's word rightly that lands on anyone who leads, who teaches the word of God. It ought to feel heavy but also joyful as you lead God's people in the word of God. You think of James 3.1. Let not many of you presume to be teachers, my brethren, for do you not know that we who teach surely will incur a stricter judgment? Why? 
Because we're dividing the word of God. And we dare not lead people incorrectly in the word of God. We need the preparation. We need the planning. We need the study. We need the mourning. We need the fasting. We need the isolation. We need to commune with God before we call others to commune with God. We need the word of God to impact our lives before we call for the word of God to impact others' lives. There needs to be the weight of the word of God upon us. Now, Nehemiah is not publicly teaching the word of God, but he's publicly leading God's people, and he feels the weight, and there's four months of prayer and fasting and mourning, and four more months of preparation and plan and travel, and three more days of checking things out before he's ready to lead God's people. Part of that preparation is in verses 12 to 15. This is where Nehemiah becomes James Bond 007. He goes out on a covert mission. He goes out and inspects the walls, understand what he's doing. When Nehemiah, or excuse me, Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the walls, he burned them. So he wants to see the foundations underneath. Are they still good or do we need to dig them out? The big boulders that have fallen, that are no longer having mortar around them. Has the, the fire destroyed the walls? Have they destroyed the rocks? Do we need to start all over? Totally new rocks or can we use some? The gates. Is any of the wood still valuable or is it rotted? Is it beyond repair? Has it been burned so that it's useless? <coughs> the exact path that Nehemiah took, nobody knows. If you look at commentaries, they're all going to give you a different map. They're all guessing. Because some of the names of the gates have changed and the rebuilding of the wall is slightly different than probably what occurred 141 years earlier with Nebuchadnezzar. So the geography is a little bit murky for us, but the procedure is not. This man prays and plans and mourns and fasts and prepares and plots, and he, he does all of this before he presents. Do you see that? You present last. If you want to lead, the quickest way to destroy what you're leading is presenting your plan before you're ready to face the objections that will come. You need to think through all the angles, think through all the slots, think through what people are going to say. Nehemiah knows they're going to say, you're not one of us. You were born with a silver spoon in your mouth. You're from the citadel of Susa. You've never been here before. You live a thousand miles away. You're a cupbearer. You're a prime minister. You're not an engineer. So he's thought through the entire process before he presents it. Because the wolves are going to have objections. And he's going to be ready for them. In fact, verses 13 and 15 tells us he inspects the walls. That word inspect is borrowed from the medical field. It's actually a surgeon's word. The idea is a surgeon, she or he, looks at the lacerations, looks at what needs to be done, thinks through all the angles, 
reviews the procedures, reviews what she or he learned in the medical manuals before one proceeds with the surgery. That's the word that's used, and that's what Nehemiah does in isolation by himself before he presents the plan. And having planned and prayed and plotted and prepared and now presented, he's going to participate. You see, leadership is not a you do it, it's a we do it. Let me read verses 17 and 18. I love this. Listen to the pronouns. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in. How Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise and build. So they strengthened their hand for the good work. I don't know if you write in your Bibles. It doesn't matter to me. But if you do, I think it's the pronouns you want to circle. It's the pronouns you want to underline. It's the us and we and us. It's we're in this together. We're going to do it together. That's the type of leader that Nehemiah is. This is the moment of Robert Shaw lifting up his paycheck, ripping it up and throwing it on the ground, that he becomes the leader. This is the moment that Nehemiah, although he has letters from King Artaxerxes, this is the moment he becomes the leader. As he says, let us do it. We are involved. We are engaged together in this. Now, I've told you from time to time about my father. He was a career naval officer, more than two decades in the Navy. Uh, he has really strong opinions on leadership. Really strong opinions. And my dad and mom have been part of the same church since 1977. And in those years, three times, the church has had murky waters. Three times there have been some challenges for that church. And I only know this because of my dad. Nobody else would know this. But three times my dad has gone into the office of the senior pastor, just the two of them, nobody else. And he's taken one of his medals and he's pinned it on the pastor. And he said, we're here to follow you. You're the leader. Participate, you must. Lead, you must. We're going to be in this with you. You've got to lead us. And what he was saying to that pastor was, you got to be up front, but you got to bring us along, and together we're going to get through this difficult time. That's what Nehemiah does. Notice also the focus of Nehemiah. This is a little technical, but the word derision, sharpar in verse 17, he says the walls are bringing derision, but this is a technical term predominantly used in Scripture for the derision not on people, not on a nation, but derision on God. This is a technical term used of God. You see, Nehemiah's greatest concern is not the security of the people in Jerusalem. He's concerned about them. But his greater concern is that this is the city Jerusalem of the great king. The psalmists tell us that Jerusalem is God's city. 
and God's city is laid in ruins. And although Nehemiah cares for the people, although Nehemiah wants the security of the people, although Nehemiah wants to protect the people, there's something that is even greater of a concern. It is the glory of God, and the glory of God has been mocked by those around the city because it's laid in ruins for 141 years. So he's giving the people a great vision. The vision of rebuilding the walls, not only for our security, but for the glory of God. And notice the people's response in verse 18. Let us rise up and let us build. Don't we love Nehemiah types? I mean, really, Nehemiah types are individuals who pray and mourn and fast and plot and prepare and plan. And then they share the plan with others and then they participate. Nehemiah types do the work of ministry. First, the work behind the scenes in preparation of heart and then the work out in front to lead for the glory of God. They're the individuals that go to Hope Life Center and get engaged. They're the individuals that think of Revive Wisconsin and, and how they can participate in telling others about Christ and to disciple. They're the individuals who say, you know, I could probably work in the nursery. That would give a young couple the opportunity to come to church, maybe even to sleep. They need rest. Uh, we're going to give them the opportunity to to have a little separation, and I can do that. And as I carry and bounce this baby, I'm going to pray for this baby's future, that she or he may be a woman or man of God, a mighty man of God, a mighty woman of God. I can do these. They participate because they prepared their heart for God. And the result is that the people rise up and say, let us rebuild the walls. But then we come to 19 and 20. Because when we finally give the plan and we participate, there's always opposition. We saw this last week. We'll see it again. But when Sambalat the Horonite and Tobiah, his half-brained sidekick, the Ammonite servant, and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us, despised us, and said, what is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? That is Artaxerxes. Then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper, we, his servants, will arise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. So we have Sanballat and Tobiah, they're from Samaria, 10, mi 10 miles north. So they're surrounding the northern half. And then we have this man named Geshem, who's called the king of Kedar. He's from the Arabian desert, from Egypt, from the Sinai Peninsula. He's coming up from the south, they've got the city surrounded. They want nothing to do with Israel rebuilding the walls. They want nothing to do with Jerusalem rebuilding the walls. They've been bullying the Jews, probably taxing the Jews, taking advantage of the Jews for centuries, or at least one and a half centuries. They don't want the walls rebuilt. And so they play their trump card. They say, you know what? Wasn't it Artaxerxes 10 years earlier recorded in Ezra 4 that said these walls are never to be rebuilt and you are violating 
what Artaxerxes says, you guys are in trouble. Now, if I had been Nehemiah, I would have pulled out the letters from Artaxerxes. Scratch that. I would have Xeroxed those puppies. I would have put a copy on every telephone pole, every light pole, every electric pole, all around the city. Everyone would have seen Artaxerxes' signature. And I'm not saying that Nehemiah doesn't do that. But that's not his trump card. That's not his ace in the hole. His trump card, his ace in the hole, is that the God of heaven, do you see that in the text? The God of heaven, he will give us success. Nehemiah is more reliant on God than he is on the paper from Artaxerxes. I want to be a Nehemiah. Nehemiah is a man who prays and mourns and fasts. Nehemiah is a man who plans and plots and prepares. And then Nehemiah is a man who presents the plan and participates in the plan even when confrontation comes. He's a man that's out front. He's a leader. And we are called, as many of you already are, to be women and men who lead like Nehemiah. Let's pray. Father God, uh, I thank you for this man, Nehemiah, and the model that he presents to us. May his model be reality in our lives. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. There's a short video for you, and then I'll just come back and talk one more time.
Kind of a timely sermon for that kind of announcement. I want you to know that God has not been surprised by this. And we have been blessed in incredible ways with Ken and with Steve and their families and and actually Ryan as well. Because Ryan's not healthy enough to come back. He's really not been serving since January. So I've known about some of this a little longer than you. And I've been praying and planning and preparing a little longer than you. And under the guidance and watchful eye of the elder board, I want you to know we do have a plan. There's no way that we can replace Ken and Stephen Ryan. There's just no way. And by the way, I've pulled the other pastors. You're not getting a video in six more weeks. <laughs> but by God's grace, a couple things I want to share with you. We did not bring um, Sam here this summer thinking he was staying on. We would have loved him to stay on. We just didn't think that was a possibility. God arranged that. So he filled one of the slots for us. Uh, The truth is that a number of us have been pastoring here together for 10, 12, 14, 15 years. And my co-workers and I have gotten... 10, 12, 14, 15 years older. We have. And so while we cannot replace these guys, uh, we're going to fill their slots, and we do have a very clear plan. We're going to lose some experience and some wisdom, but for the benefit of the longevity of the church, we're going to bring in younger individuals so that Like us, when we started in our 20s and 30s here, we're going to have the next group at that age leading and building into them because we're all about the next generation so that we have longevity as a church. So Sam is already on staff. Beginning of August, uh, a guy named Isaiah and his wife Amy, they have children 11, 8, and 6. They'll be visiting us for four days. Uh, We have been in dialogue with them for quite some time. It's kind of a rigorous process. I can't tell you that they're coming on staff, but we're really far down the road with them. And tomorrow we have an interview very far along in a process with a guy named Andrew uh, and his fiancée. So all three would be quite a bit younger than... uh, the group that has pastored for a while. This means that some of the old leadership, like Brian and Dan and uh, Dave, (laughs) will have to uh, shepherd some of us young guys a little bit more. (laughs) But I want you to know that while we will so miss Ken and Steve and Ryan, there has been a work in place to get us ready for the fall. And by God's grace, uh, I've listened to, I don't even know how many tapes. I have read 75-plus resumes. Uh, The best three happen to be all young, uh, one of whom is on staff now. 
And I believe God is just preparing us for the next generation and for the longevity and health of the church. So let me go ahead and pray. Then I need to leave and do this thing again over in Marathon. There will be one more song. Let me pray. Father, thank you for Steve and Allison. What choice, servants. And Ken and Tina, what choice, servants. And Ryan, who we pray for his health to return. We have been so blessed by these three family units. And really, we're blessed that Ryan and Steve and Allison are not leaving Highland and their family. And really, that Ken and Tina, when they're in the area, will always worship here at Highland. And we're just so encouraged by that. And what they've done in our lives and how they built into us, we have been blessed. And Father, we're thankful for the addition of Sam and potential addition of Isaiah and Andrew, if that's how you lead. Father, we know that you have a plan and you are working it out for the betterment of your glory and your church, your bride. We trust you and we're confident in you. Thank you for that kind of confidence, knowing that you're in control. We love you. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.